0: This is History 2311, Lecture 1b, Reconstruction. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. Everybody. Oh, freedom. Oh. So I'm not going to say a lot about the Civil War. I hope and trust that you basically know what it was and what it was about. But if you don't know, if you need background, that is what your textbook is for. Uh, American YAP chapters 13 and 14 will set you right. Anytime, really, that you need background, anytime I go too fast, or I assume that you know something you don't, or even if I just gloss over a topic you'd like to hear more about, the textbook is there for you. Suffice it to say for now that the Southern states, in the Civil War, the Southern states, the slave states of the United States of America tried to secede from the Union, tried to leave the Union in order to preserve slavery, and everything that they thought went with it the result, of course, was a war of North against South, the bloodiest war in American history. But after five years and something like 750,000 deaths, the war did come to an end. The South lost. Robert E. Lee's surrender to Ulysses Grant at Appomattox, Virginia, marked the defeat of the rebellion, the destruction of the Confederacy, uh, the military victory of the Union Army, and the preservation of the Union. It also meant the end of slavery, The Emancipation Proclamation, uh, followed by the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, abolished slavery in the United States. But the end of the war did not mean that the problems that had spawned the war were solved. If anything, all sorts of new questions had opened up. Four million formerly enslaved people were free, but what came next? What would their freedom look like? And what would the post-slavery South look like? Would the rebel leaders and the rebel soldiers be punished? Could former slaves and former slave owners actually live side by side? And how was the South going to be reintegrated into the nation after the carnage of this terrible, terrible war? The period that followed the Civil War from the war's end in 1865 to about 1877, which is when the military occupation of the South ended, that period is known as Reconstruction. And this is our topic for today, and it is a great starting point for our course. Like I said in the first video, I have been thinking about how it changed this course to split it at 1865, to make reconstruction the beginning of our story instead of just something in the middle. The Civil War looms large in American memory. Americans love to read about the war, to write about the war, to memorialize it, remember it. They love to dress up and reenact it. But this is not true of reconstruction. Reconstruction was just as dramatic and as important as the war itself, but its history is little known by Americans today and and even less known by people outside the United States. Often Reconstruction just kind of is seen as the epilogue to the civil war, the aftermath, the ironic twist ending. The slaves are freed, hooray, but then along comes segregation and sharecropping and the Ku Klux Klan. What I want to do in this lecture, and what I hope you will continue in your discussions uh, this week and next, is to think about what does it mean to make reconstruction the start of our story, the starting point of modern U.S. history? What does it mean to see it, not as you know the depressing epilogue to the Civil War, but as a crucial episode in its own right, a moment of radical possibility, where true democracy and true equality seemed up for grabs. And yes, the way that possibility was defeated. Here's a quote from the great African-American historian W. E. B. Du Bois calling Reconstruction the finest effort to achieve democracy for the working millions that the world has ever seen. What if we saw Reconstruction as the birthplace of the America we know today, not the American revolution, not the pilgrims landing at Plymouth Rock, This might shake us out of one way of looking at US history as a story about the founding fathers, the constitution, the meaning of liberty. It might give us an alternate story, one about state violence and terrorist violence, about racism and white supremacy, but also about struggle for real equality, for real democracy. America in 2021 is clearly still haunted by the ghosts and crimes of reconstruction. Those dummies that stormed Congress last Wednesday, waving their Confederate flags. I mean, what were they doing if not cosplaying the political violence of Reconstruction? But there is a bright side, a hopeful side of Reconstruction that also deserves to be remembered, and that I think Americans need today. During Reconstruction, the United States tried to end white supremacy and build an egalitarian society, a kind of multiracial democracy on the ashes of slavery. During Reconstruction, not the Revolution, the United States made its first real attempt to live up to its ideals, to the truer meaning of freedom, democracy, and equality, not only for African Americans, but for all Americans. And this attempt was defeated in the end, or at least forced into retreat, but it was in many ways the most progressive decade, politically and racially, in US history. If Reconstruction had succeeded, It might be the 1870s rather than the 1770s that we remember as the true American Revolution. In fact, the historian Eric Foner calls Reconstruction America's unfinished revolution. So that is the topic of this video. And here is a rough outline of my lecture. I'm going to talk about what freedom meant for the formerly enslaved and then turn to reconstruction as it was organized by the government first by President Andrew Johnson and then what's called radical reconstruction which was when Congress took control from Johnson over reconstruction finally we'll turn to reconstruction's defeat and to how it has been remembered and its legacies and I'll do this I'll put an outline like this in every one of my videos from here on out remember that you can always listen to my lectures as also as an audio only podcast of course if you do that you won't see the slides. I will post my PowerPoint slides on OWL every week so if there's an image you want to return to you can do so. And I suppose I will post my notes to the text of my lectures. I I would say please don't read the text as a substitute for the lecture because I will sometimes go off script. Uh, If you want to read text, read the textbook but I will post the text as a reference for you. I should also say in advance before this lecture That there are a few racist images in the slides for this week. Nothing especially graphic, but uh, there are a few caricatures of African Americans in the stereotyped racist style that was all too common at this time. I don't feel like I can leave them out, they are part of the history, they're part of the story, but I do try to balance them with uh, more positive, respectful images from the time. So I want to start as the outline suggests, with the former slaves themselves, with the freed men and women, any history of reconstruction that does not put the freed people at the center is going to be distorted and incomplete. If we were in class together right now, I would ask you a question. I would ask you to imagine yourself in the shoes of the formerly enslaved, of the newly freed people. And I'd ask you, on the day they received their freedom, What do you think the formerly enslaved people did first? What would you do first on the day you received your freedom? I can't ask you uh, that question through the screen, but I invite you to think about it right now, to imagine yourself in that moment. First of all, of course, they celebrated. There was mass jubilation, music, revelry, song, and prayers of thanksgiving. Uh, June 19th, known as Juneteenth, has become sort of a semi-official holiday for celebrating emancipation. Uh, There's not actually one day that all the slaves uh, were freed, but June 19th marks the day that slavery was emancipated, or slavery was ended in Texas, and gradually over the years it has become a more and more national holiday marking emancipation. The music that uh, you heard at the start of this video was a black spiritual, "O oh Freedom, uh, that was either written in this era, in Reconstruction, or perhaps written and sung secretly before Emancipation by people dreaming of freedom. Like a lot of black spirituals from the slave era, the song elides the distinction between freedom on earth and the freedom of death in heaven. When the celebrations were done, the main thing that the freed people wanted was, as Frederick Douglass says here, to be left alone. They left their former masters, they left the plantations they had lived on, or at least they moved away from the slave quarters. They wanted to chart their own fates to be masters of their own lives. They reunited with their families. One of the many horrors of slavery was the way it broke apart families. People could be sold apart from their spouses, Children could be sold away from their parents, and they would often never see each other again. So, one of the first things that freed people did after emancipation was find and reconstruct their families. The freedmen and women established churches and schools, their own black churches and their own black schools. After the family, these were probably the two institutions that mattered most to African Americans churches where they could worship with black clergy, with black choirs, with their own religious services and traditions, and schools where freed people, both children and adults could learn to read, could get an education. America's first black colleges were all created in this era, Uh, places like Fisk University in Tennessee, Howard University in Washington, and black elementary schools sprung up all over the South. Some of these were run by the federal government, some by northern missionary societies, most of them just by former slaves themselves. And African-Americans got involved in politics. As soon as the war ended, freed men and women claimed a place in the public sphere. Plantation workers organized strikes for higher wages. They took part in sit-in protests. They held conventions and parades. Even before they had the right to vote, they organized their own freedom ballots. Now, here's one thing they didn't do. They did not rise up in violence. This was the threat that the white South had been quaking over for years, that if they ever gave blacks an ounce of freedom, if they ever took their boot off the slave's neck, they would surely rise up and slaughter them. But it never happened. It never came close to happening. I started with the freed people because, at all times, the central actor in African-American history was African-Americans themselves. But now I wanna talk about the government's role in Reconstruction, briefly under Abraham Lincoln and then under his successor, Andrew Johnson. And then the period where Congress took control of Reconstruction, away from the President, the period known as Radical Reconstruction. In the early days of Reconstruction, the freed people had a crucial ally in the Freedmen's Bureau. This was a small, short-lived branch of the federal government created by Abraham Lincoln in March 1865. Its official name was uh, the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. And the Freedmen's Bureau was given the task of helping former slaves. It only lasted five years, but over the five years of its existence, the Bureau provided food to the poor, poor whites and blacks. Uh, It established schools and hospitals for freedmen and women. It tried to settle disputes between whites and blacks, and it tried to ensure equal treatment of blacks by the courts and the law and white authorities. This was not an easy job. The bureau was directed by a union general named Oliver Otis Howard. Another union general, William Sherman, wrote to Howard at this time saying, I fear you have Hercules' task, it is not in your power to fulfill one-tenth of the expectations of those who have framed the bureau. Sherman was right, Howard had a hard job. But if Howard's job was hard, it got a whole lot harder six weeks after the Bureau was created, when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and Andrew Johnson became the 15th president of the United States. Andrew Johnson was not a friend to the Freedmen's Bureau, and he was not a friend to the Freedmen. He was not even a Republican. He was a Southern Democrat from the slave state Tennessee, Lincoln had only added him to the ticket as vice president in 1864 in an attempt to win some votes in the border states. But with Lincoln's death, Johnson ironically became the president who would preside over the reconstruction of the south. Johnson had not actually supported secession, but he was in all other ways sympathetic to the Confederacy. He supported slavery, he was deeply racist, He opposed the abolition of slavery. He was a staunch defender of Southern states' rights. And so Johnson's first act as president was to grant a blanket pardon to all Confederate soldiers. Uh, Higher ranking officers had to apply for amnesty, but if they signed an oath of loyalty to the union, Johnson would pardon them carte blanche and give back all of their captured property, their land, their homes, their wealth, everything, but their slaves. Soon he was pardoning a hundred former Confederate officers a day as fast as he could sign the papers. Johnson vetoed the civil rights act of 1866 and he vetoed the bill that created the Freedmen's Bureau. And when Congress passed the 14th amendment, which was supposed to promise citizenship and equal rights to all persons born in the United States, Johnson made it his personal mission to defeat it, traveling around the country campaigning against its ratification. Uh, This cartoon here has Johnson kicking over the Freedmen's Bureau, like a chest of drawers as a bureau. Get it? Uh, Johnson interfered with Reconstruction any way he could. He appointed military commanders unsympathetic to Reconstruction. He removed officials who seemed too sympathetic to the Freedmen or too effective. And he openly encouraged white Southerners to defy federal law. I don't know if he reminds you of any current presidents, but uh, just something for you to think about. A confrontation with Congress was inevitable. Remember that Congress at this time was completely dominated by Republicans, Republicans who had just stood with Lincoln through four years of war against the Confederate South. In 1868, the House of Representatives voted for the first time in US history to impeach the president, and Johnson was placed on trial before the Senate for high crimes and misdemeanors. The specific rationale for Johnson's impeachment was that he had fired the Secretary of War without the Senate's consent, but really this was a fight over Reconstruction, a fight over the future of the South. Now, as you may know from watching the news the last year or so, the House of Representatives in Congress can vote to impeach the President, and if the House votes to impeach, the Senate must then hold a trial but it takes a two thirds vote in the Senate to convict and remove a sitting president. And that did not happen when Trump was impeached in 2020 and it did not happen in 1868. Although the vote was much closer in 1868, the Senate voted 35 to 19 to convict Johnson, which was just one vote short of the two thirds needed to convict him. So Johnson held on to the White House for a few more months, but control of Reconstruction passed from the White House to Congress. And as I said, Congress at this time was completely dominated by Northern Republicans because the South had seceded. They had risen up in arms against the country. They had no representation in the federal government anymore. Despite Johnson's veto, Congress passed the Reconstruction Act, which reestablished the Freedmen's Bureau, kept the South under military rule, and called for the creation of new state governments in the South, with black men given the right to vote. Congress ratified the 14th Amendment, which promised equal rights under the law for all Americans, and the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, which prohibited federal or state governments from denying any citizen the right to vote because of their race or color. Also, the election of 1868 put Ulysses Grant, a Republican and the Union's most prominent military hero, in the White House. Uh, Johnson did not attend his inauguration. The period uh, from 1868 into the 1870s is sometimes known as Radical Reconstruction. The term usually implies a criticism that uh, wild-eyed radicals had gone too far. Now, if you're working for justice and equality, I'm not really sure you can go too far, but I always like to say or to remind people that the word radical means getting to the root of the problem. And some Republicans, like Thaddeus Stevens, who became the leader of the radical Republican faction in Congress, embraced the label of radical. Here, Stevens is saying the whole fabric of Southern society must be changed or the United States will never be a true republic. So let's talk about some of the ways Reconstruction really was radical. African Americans never dominated uh, Reconstruction politics as their white opponents hysterically claimed. But the election of more than 2000 African Americans to public office was a radical departure in American government. Arguably black Americans had more political power during reconstruction than at any time since 14 African Americans were elected to the house of representatives Two African Americans were elected to the Senate. Both of these were in Mississippi, which would not have another black Senator until 1967. America's first black governor was elected in Louisiana. At the state level, hundreds of African-Americans were elected to state legislatures and to local offices like sheriffs, judges, tax assessors, justices of the peace. And these black officials pioneered new civil rights legislation. They established the South's first state-supported schools, the first public schools in the South for both whites and blacks were created by these black officials. They passed laws making it illegal for railroads, hotels, and other institutions to discriminate on the basis of race. All of this is really important, not just that, you know, X number of African Americans got elected, but what they did when elected, because it points to the radical potential of Reconstruction and the potential it had for remaking American democracy, not just for African Americans, but for all Americans. The new black politicians, along with some white allies in the Freedmen's Bureau, and some members of Congress, advanced a more expansive understanding of equality and democracy than almost any white politician before the war. Yes, of course, in the Declaration of Independence, you know, Thomas Jefferson said, all men are created equal. But as you probably also know, uh, Jefferson's definition of equality and who he meant that to apply to was real iffy. And the concept of equality before the law is something enjoyed by all people, regardless of their social status. And it barely existed before the civil war and reconstruction. Before reconstruction, Americans had a rhetorical commitment to equality, but they were fine with all kinds of second-class citizenship. Inequality was taken for granted, built into the legal system in dozens of ways, race, ethnicity, gender, of course, wealth, uh, but also You know, paupers were not equal, prostitutes were not equal, vagrants were not equal, immigrants were not equal, people who couldn't pay their debts were not equal. In the lead up to the Civil War, and then in the crucible of the war itself, the Republican Party had moved towards a half embrace of certain kinds of equality. To Lincoln in 1860, uh, black men deserved certain basic rights, but he would not have agreed that they were truly equal. But that changed during Reconstruction. Uh, Reverend James Hood who was a black minister and a politician from North Carolina said the colored people have read the Declaration of Independence until it became part of their nature they read and reread these words and embraced this idea all men are created equal all people are created equal they embraced a different understanding of the document that Jefferson himself had meant they embraced and demanded the kind of equality that we would recognize as equality today of course Every action provokes an opposite reaction, and the most radical, most progressive decade in American history was followed by the most drastic backlash, the most vicious opposition. The South's old leaders, the planter class, the old slaveholders, and the Democratic Party they controlled, bitterly opposed Reconstruction. White Southerners believed that they were being cruelly mistreated by what they called carpetbaggers and scalawags. A uh, carpet bag is a cheap suitcase. A carpet bagger was someone who came down from the North to exploit the poor, suffering South, while a scalawag was a white Southerner who cooperated with the Republicans and the Freedmen's Bureau. Some poor whites did briefly uh, support Reconstruction. The Freedmen's Bureau was supposed to help poor whites too, but generally whites turned against it as it became clear their economic situation was not improving. And most seven whites just hated the Yankees, they hated Reconstruction, and they hated, above all, the idea that the formerly enslaved might now be their equals. I think it is pointless to debate, people always want to debate, whether poor whites turned against Reconstruction for economic or racial reasons. It's it's kind of like how people always want to debate whether Trump supporters are motivated by racism or by economic anxiety. But, I mean, look, race and class anxiety operate together. Uh, and in the South, economic hardship merged with racist nostalgia for white supremacy. White Southerners could not accept the idea that former slaves were now voting, holding office, equal under the law. And they, so they blamed their economic troubles, which were real, on the former slaves. Here, this is one of the racist images I talked about, here is a Democratic Party flyer from 1866. And the flyer is saying that the Freedmen's Bureau is an agency that lets the black man lie around in idleness at the expense of the white man. This is, you know, this is the perennial argument used in almost every generation against any kind of government aid or social welfare, that the government is going to take white people's money and give it to people of color. Notice too that this flyer is from Pennsylvania, which is not in the South, but in the North. These arguments were not unique to the South and the Freedmen's Bureau and Reconstruction were controversial in the North as well. As Reconstruction went on, more and more white Southerners, especially former Confederate soldiers, launched a campaign of violence to overthrow it. This began with individual acts of violence. Black men were attacked or beaten, Were stabbed for all manner of transgressions, even minor or imagined ones like being insolent or failing to step out of the way on the sidewalk. Black women were raped. Uh, But the violence grew more organized, more pervasive after around 1868, when Republican state governments came to power across the South. Dozens of different secret societies and secret armies were formed to terrorize blacks and sabotage Reconstruction. The most infamous of these groups, of course, is the Ku Klux Klan, but there were dozens of others. The White League, the Red Shirts, the Knights of the White Camellia. Basically, these were paramilitary organizations, usually made up of former Confederate soldiers, um, terrorist organizations, essentially, that targeted black politicians, black ministers, teachers in black schools, anyone with influence. They also attacked white allies of Reconstruction, uh, like Republican office holders or agents of the Freedmen's Bureau. White mobs burned schools and churches in places like Memphis, Charleston, New Orleans, Atlanta. In one New Orleans race riot, nearly 50 African-Americans were murdered in one night. Uh, And in the Colfax massacre of 1873 in Louisiana, somewhere between 80 to 120 African-Americans were murdered, shot, hung, burned alive for the crime of voting for a Republican state government. This was the deadliest act of terrorism in US history until the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995. At first, the federal government tried to control the violence. Uh, President Grant dispatched federal marshals and eventually the U.S. Army to arrest hundreds of accused Klansmen and other terrorists, Basically, basically shut down, destroyed the Ku Klux Klan. But as the 1870s went on, there was less and less federal intervention on the Freedmen's behalf. Northerners were increasingly unhappy about the use of federal troops in the South, and Northern journalists and pundits began to talk about the, quote, failure of Reconstruction, and to blame that failure on Blacks in racist ways. Here is a cartoon by uh, the Northern artist, Thomas Nast, depicting the alleged chaos of what he's calling colored rule. So you see these are more racist caricatures uh, of Black politicians shouting and carrying on. The point is supposed to be that Uh, these African-American politicians are making a mockery of government. Now, Thomas Nast, who who drew this, is the same Northern artist who drew this very sentimental, heroic depiction of emancipation back in 1865. And in these two images, I think you can see white Northerners turning against African-Americans and against Reconstruction. It didn't help, of course, that the country went into a severe economic depression in 1873, or that the Democrats made substantial gains in the midterm elections of 1874. All of these things were pushing the North and the Republican Party in particular away from its commitment to Reconstruction. One by one, the Southern states elected new democratic governments devoted to white supremacy, controlled by the same slaveholding planter elites that had ruled before the war. These uh, Democrats called themselves redeemers, since they claimed to have redeemed the white South from corruption, misgovernment, and misrule by Negroes and the North. Redeemer governments were established pretty quickly in states with white majorities, places like Tennessee in 1870, Texas in 1873. In states with black majorities, like Mississippi and Louisiana, there was more of a political fight. And the violence grew more ferocious, more out in the open. Back in the 1860s, the KKK wore hoods and masks and struck by night. But by 1876, the white mobs were attacking African Americans in broad daylight without wearing masks, knowing that nothing would be done. In South Carolina, the ex Confederate general uh, and red shirt leader, Wade Hampton, said he would wade knee deep in blood to win election as governor. And he did win election. In 1876. By 1876, every southern state had been, quote, redeemed to white supremacy. 1876 was also a presidential election year. Ulysses Grant was stepping down after two terms, and in the south, this election was understood as a chance to put the final nail in the coffin of reconstruction and racial equality. The last remaining Southern Republicans, like uh, the governor of Mississippi, pleaded with Grant to send troops down to the South, not just to ensure a fair election, but to protect their very lives. But Grant said, the Northern public is tired out by all these Southern problems, and so he sent no new troops. On election day, armed Democrats beat up Republicans, they set fire to polling stations in black districts, they drove blacks away from the polls, and they won the Southern states uh, by a landslide. Well, actually, this is contested. When the votes were counted, Samuel Tilden, the Democrat, had won in the popular vote, but the electoral vote was disputed in South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana, uh, which were the last three states still under Republican control. Congress appointed a special commission to decide the matter. Democrats and Republicans on the commission struck a kind of secret backroom deal called the Bargain of 1877. The exact details of the bargain of 1877 were never made public, but the outcome was clear enough. A handful of Southern electors agreed to change their votes and support the Republican, Rutherford Hayes, for president, just enough to give Hayes the White House. But as his first action in office, Hayes removed federal troops from the South, ending Reconstruction. Now Republicans did, as the troops were leaving, they did make the Southern Democrats promise to respect the civil and political rights of blacks. But, you know, that was a charade. Everybody understood that the sun was going down on Reconstruction. The North was abandoning the freedmen, leaving them to the mercies of their old masters and the angry poor whites who had thrown in with the planter elites in the name of white supremacy. I wanna talk finally about how Reconstruction has been remembered and what its legacies might be. Another question that I like to ask in class is, who really won the Civil War? Was it the North? Was it the Union Army? Was it African Americans, the freed men and women? Could you make an argument that maybe they didn't win in the long run? That white supremacy still triumphed or that the South even triumphed? Or maybe the real victor was some other group or element of American society we haven't even named yet. I hope you will talk about this in tutorial and on Teams. This is a statue of Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville, Virginia. Lee was the leading Confederate general. He commanded the Army of Northern Virginia, and he lost, he surrendered to Grant in 1865. This particular statue, uh, you might recognize it. It's infamous today. When the city tried to take it down in 2017, there was a huge rally of Nazis and white supremacists in Charlottesville and and clashes with counter-protesters that turned violent and deadly. A lot of these Confederate statues have been torn down, especially in 2020, after the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor last year, and the protests they provoked. This here is actually a different Robert E. Lee statue. This is the one in Richmond, Virginia, covered with graffiti and a projection of George Floyd's face. All these statues of Confederate heroes were not erected right after the war. They were all put up a generation or two later, in like the 1910s and 1920s. When the people of Virginia erected these statues of Robert E. Lee, they were not monuments to the South's defeat. They were monuments to white supremacy because by the 1910s and 20s, Jim Crow segregation was at its height. White supremacy was unchallenged in the South and unchallenged by the North. That's one of the bitter twists in this story. White supremacy survived the abolition of slavery. It outlasted Reconstruction. It seemingly defeated racial equality after all. Here's another twist of the story, though. The defeat of Reconstruction brought no economic rewards to poor whites. Well into the 20th century, the South remained an impoverished, basically colonial economy, where poor blacks and whites were exploited by Southern planters and by Northern industrialists. And the South had a uniquely repressive system of labor relations, had lower wages, fewer rights than anywhere else in the nation. It's not a coincidence that the South invented the system of sharecropping where poor tenant farmers who could be black or white lived on planters lands in a kind of permanent debt. The idea was uh, the landowner contracted with the sharecroppers, the landowner who had money would loan the poor sharecroppers tools and seeds and food and a place to live and then the sharecroppers would have to pay the landlord back each year with the crops they grew. But the landlords had all the power in this relationship. They were the ones who judged how much the crop was worth. They decided when and if the sharecroppers' debts were paid, and so people never got out of debt. In fact, very often they would fall a little bit short every year and get further and further and further behind. The southern states also passed vacancy laws that made it illegal not to have a job. This meant that if blacks, or sometimes poor whites, refused to sign sharecropping contracts, they could be arrested. And if they were in debt to their landlords, which they almost always were, they were not allowed to leave. So sharecropping became a kind of trap, a form of slavery, or at least indentured servitude, in which both black and white families were trapped for generations. The South also adopted a system of convict leasing, where poor blacks, mostly blacks, also sometimes whites, could be convicted of just about any crime, including new crimes they made up, like being a public nuisance, vagrancy and so on. They could be convicted of just about any crime and then rented out as prison labor. This system was so lucrative for local governments that it became the principal source of state revenue in the South. The criminal justice system became, in a lot of ways, just a machine for funneling black men into convict labor. Finally, the Democratic Party, of course, remained the party of the white South and white supremacy. And as an instrument of white supremacy, Democrats, invented all kinds of ways to get around the 15th amendment and prevent blacks from voting. They created poll taxes. They made it so you had to pay to vote. They created literacy tests, extremely difficult and unfair tests designed to prevent African Americans from voting. All these hoops and obstacles also kept a lot of poor whites from voting. Basically in the interest of maintaining racial control, the Southern states rejected democracy almost entirely. Over time, they constructed the legal edifice of segregation known as Jim Crow. Jim Crow was what? A totalitarian, anti-democratic, single-party regime built on explicitly racial lines. If this existed in the 21st century or even the late 20th century, we would call it apartheid. We would call it fascism. But I think people don't call Jim Crow by those names because it was American. You know, we have these conversations, could fascism happen in America? It did happen in America for like a hundred years. Near the start of this lecture, I mentioned the Trumpists that stormed the US Capitol building last week. I described it as reconstruction cosplay. Now you might say, uh, shouldn't I say civil war cosplay? In the ugliness and upheaval of politics today, Americans sometimes do talk about a new civil war. And most Americans, of course, are appropriately horrified at this possibility, But there are a few who fantasize about it, generally deluded white men who imagine a spasm of violence could somehow restore what the imagined racial hierarchy they think was their birthright. You might have heard of the Boogaloo movement. If you don't know what that is, uh, Google it or, or, or don't. It really is too stupid to dignify with much attention. But while I think this talk of a new civil war is largely just macho power fantasies, I do see echoes of reconstruction everywhere I look. On the one hand, there's hunger for real transformative change, the kind of change that can only come from true multiracial democracy and and economic democracy, redistribution of wealth. But on the other hand, there's corruption and political violence. One political party seems increasingly ready to use the law, use intimidation, use violence to suppress votes, black votes in particular, to insulate itself from the workings of democracy. While the other political party takes for granted the support of black folks and working people, whether it deserves that support or not. And all this seems awfully familiar to me. The US today is not reenacting the civil war, it is reenacting reconstruction, even if the two parties have kind of switched sides. We'll talk about how that happened as the course goes on. If my face was on the screen right now, I might do that split screen thing I did in the last video. Uh, One of my two heads would talk about reconstruction as a moment of radical possibility, a daring idealistic experiment in multiracial democracy, a moment when it seemed poor whites and poor blacks might actually come together to seize true equality from their former masters. My other head would then say that dream was broken on the stone of racism and white supremacy like it always gets broken. The old divide and conquer strategy. This is how the wealthy keep the people down. That's why I need two heads, because I think we need both histories and to keep both histories in view. Thanks for watching. I look forward to discussing all of this with you in the class forums on Teams. LBC, one more time. be